Hey there, if you're new to the show, a great way to follow our reporting when the podcast is over is NPR One. Hand-curated podcasts and audio stories ready when you are from NPR politics and beyond. Find it in your app store now, NPR O-N-E. Okay, here's the show. Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast here with our weekly roundup of political news. Hillary Clinton is back on the trail. Donald Trump is on Dr. Oz because 2016. Also, this episode, a couple of your questions. And we'll end the show with Can't Let It Go, our regular discussion of things we cannot stop thinking about this week. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics in the campaign. I'm Sarah McCammon, campaign reporter. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. As of today, Thursday, September 15th, there are 53 days until this election. So close, but it seems so far away. How are we holding up, you guys? Let's not talk about that. We're here. My new thing to get through the election is to binge watch, like, a really fun TV series a week. This week, I'm binging on uh, a show called Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. It is amazing. If you're not uh-huh. watching it, watch it. Cool. It brightened my week. Cool. I've been binging on like My Little Pony. So <laughs> yeah. I didn't get during the Olympics why my daughter was so excited when she saw Simone Biles like fly through the air in a pink leotard. And she was like, Pinkie Pie. Aww. And I was like, what is Pinkie Pie? My Little and Pony. My Little Pony. I didn't know yeah. that. We're My Little Pony girls. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's okay. from the 80s. That's great. That was, I was... I was into that. Okay. So Hillary Clinton back on the trail in North Carolina today. We'll let you know how that goes in the second half of the podcast because literally as we're taping this, it actually hasn't happened yet. But let's start with the latest Trump news. Today, Trump was on the Dr. Oz show to talk about his health. Obviously, health was really big this week because there was that video of Hillary Clinton near collapse this past Sunday. She was diagnosed with pneumonia. She took a few days off the campaign trail. Since then, she's released some new stuff from her doctor. Trump released some new stuff from his doctor. Everyone's talking about health this week. Yeah. And so, like, it was interesting this week because Donald Trump's campaign was like, no, 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 he's not going to release his health records on Dr. Oz after it had been reported that he would. And then he did, sort of. I mean, who knows what to expect at this point in the campaign. But, yeah, I mean, he did put out, like, sort of some basic medical numbers, things like weight, right, and uh, cholesterol cholesterol and and some prostate health and things like that. We basically had a half day of hype, and then we had this day of... Donald Trump going on the Dr. Oz show, you know, where he kind of polled the audience to see if he should release his medical records or not. It was such a daytime drama moment. If your health is as strong as it seems from your review of systems, why not share your medical records? Why not? Well, I have really no problem in doing it. I I have it right here. I mean, should I do it? I don't care. Should I do it? It's, uh, it's two letters. One is the report, and the other is from Lenox Hill Hospital. Yeah, may I see them? Saying, yeah, sure. So these are the, these are the report. This those, is from... Those were all the tests they were just done last week. That was Trump on the Dr. Oz show, where he revealed this piece of paper uh, that had the latest health report on him. And the campaign says in that letter uh, that... Trump is 236 pounds, which is overweight. Uh, he's on cholesterol meds. He, But he also, like, didn't say that he eats a lot of fast food and does not exercise that much, right? Like, he didn't mention some stuff. Okay, look. Here's the thing. Donald Trump's doctor had said that he was the healthiest person who would ever be ever. president. Yeah, ever. we learned that Donald Trump uh, eats fast food KFC. and doesn't exercise, Donald's. okay? Yet he did say that he has some forms of exercise. How do you stay healthy on the campaign trail? Well, it's a lot of work. You know, when I'm speaking in front of 15 and 20,000 people and I'm up there using a lot of motion, uh, I guess in its own way, it's a uh, it's a pretty healthy act. And uh, I really enjoy doing it. A lot of times these rooms are very hot, like saunas. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's a form of exercise. And, you know, it's like hot yoga, but no yoga. <laughs> Maybe he could put out a, a workout video okay. that's just hand gestures. Can my exercise regimen include the fact that I lift my TV remote sometimes? No, because I'll tell you this. <laughs> if hand gestures or hand movements were a form of exercise, of rigorous exercise, athlete. hey, and there'd be no fat Italians, okay? I'm just going to say <laughs> wow. that. Wow. Dominico, right? Side note, you are an Italian. self-identified Italian-American. Oh, yeah. I'm first generation, so there you go. And I do use my hands a lot. That is not why... I've gained 16 pounds in the 16. <laughs> but I mean, what like, did, that's not, did you know? we expect to hear serious health talk on the Dr. Oz show? It's the Dr. Oz show. 
Right. No, He's but, been criticized by the mainstream medical community. Look, Dr. Oz had to go before Congress yeah. and was grilled and had to admit that the dietary weight loss supplements that he uh, has been putting forward he, are not based in science. Yeah. The thing about this is that Donald Trump is going to somebody who he knows has a big audience. He's trying to get his message out there. But it is not like the most credible expert. And I think that when it comes down to all this stuff, we can tell a little bit of how these two candidates would govern, because I think Donald Trump has repeatedly said, you know, that he uh, knows more than the generals and that he could replace the generals if he needed to. So when it comes to like health, military, he's not basing uh, what the things that he would do as president likely on the most credible experts. He's basing it on who he likes and who would cater to him. And this is in yes. keeping this is in keeping with, I think, so much of Trump's larger message and sort of view of the world. Um, you know, he gave an economic speech today and his campaign has been saying, look, you know, people will tell you that, uh, you know, there were benefits of NAFTA, that it was a net positive for the U.S., you know, trade deals like NAFTA. But, uh you know, don't listen to experts like Moody's Analytics, what to their take on it, because these are the same people that have left, uh, you know, the American worker in the dust. And so it's just this sort of general skepticism of any kind of it's an, establishment. It's a or, pervasive anti-elitism. I mean, it's true. They, and and it makes a lot of sense, given his campaign, given his candidacy, that he has continued to say that, you know, the elites want to say this but or that. All those experts got us into trouble. He says this repeatedly. I know, but some things I want to be elite. I want the most elitist of doctors looking at me. I want the most elitist of experts making the smart decisions. It's like some, sometimes it's okay to want what's elite. Also, on that note, um, Hillary Clinton also released a bit of health information on Wednesday. Not a ton. Uh, it shows that she is on blood thinners. Uh, her blood pressure and cholesterol are all normal. And in a statement, her doctor said that her physical exam was normal. Um, so there you go. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say, though, it's sort of ludicrous to think that folks in their 70s are going to have excellent physical health. Yeah. There are a lot of physical health problems that are more prevalent in your older age than they are for, you know, President Obama, who was a younger president. So to see all these health reports, it's it little, almost yeah. seems a bit like a farce. Well, and but, I, also, but I will say, I mean, we shouldn't throw the doctors under the bus completely. I mean, when protocols are put into place, there's usually some history behind it. And if you look back at how medical records first started kind of being revealed, there were a few incidents where presidents had suffered debilitating diseases while they were in office, and we didn't know about their medical history. Uh, Woodrow Wilson is probably the biggest example where he suffered a stroke, and that was kept from the public, and he was partially paralyzed. He lost vision in one eye and was debilitated for eight 18 months. So and the public had no idea. Uh, FDR, for example. Now, everybody now knows that FDR was in a wheelchair. People back then didn't know that he had been in a wheelchair because he was it was kept from public view. That doesn't matter as much as the fact that after he was reelected, six months after he was reelected, he died and he of a stroke. And they never revealed that he uh, had high blood pressure. So these things have history, and that's why so these protocols I mean, Was it so place. consequential? I mean, the country went on. We had another president. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, to be honest, though, like, but it's there are mechanisms. Right. Well, but okay, but it's messy. For... I will say it's messy when, uh, you know, your president suddenly is no longer able to do the job. I mean, and they had to put in place because of Wilson four decades later, the 25th Amendment that talked about what would happen if a vacancy arose. If someone's not able to serve the job, especially since both of these candidates combined are the two oldest candidates running, people want to at least know that they're fit to serve. I don't think necessarily we need all of the detail to be mulled over and poured over uh, in great depth, but you want to know that at least they're fit. Okay. Let's talk about policies for a second. This week, Trump released a child care plan. He proposed universal paid maternity leave, but nothing for fathers. This is, however, still a big departure from the usual Republican playbook. What's in the policy, Sarah? Yeah, and this is heavily influenced by his daughter, Ivanka, who has made this a big issue. You know, it's a big part of her brand, really, to talk about work-life balance for working women and especially working moms. Uh, she talked about this first at the Republican National Convention. So uh, it includes several things. And, and I think the most surprising for many people was this guarantee of paid maternity leave, six weeks for mothers only. Um, and the Trump campaign says they would finance this through reforms to, you know, abuses 
in the unemployment insurance system, but they have not spelled out how they would do that. Um, and this, of course, is for mothers whose, whose jobs don't already uh, supply maternity leave. The other big part of it is tax deductions from income taxes for families to basically write off part of their child care expenses. They could deduct that from their income. Uh, and it's there's a complicated sort of formula for it, but it's basically based on the average cost of child care in their state. Now, this is kind of a redo of a plan that he released earlier that some said wasn't uh, really fair for poorer people. The problem there was that the tax deduction uh, wouldn't be applicable to people who don't, don't pay file taxes, taxes because they're because, poor enough. Right. So if you not, don't make enough money, the deduction wouldn't apply to you. So people said, well, hey, this doesn't do anything for the poor. And so a month later, what's new is that they added a $1,200 rebate for people who don't file taxes. Now, this plan is unusual for a Republican. Um, This could help him get support from women, or does it help him or change anything at all? I mean, does this move voters? I mean, I don't know that it could hurt his standing with some of these voters, particularly women, that he needs to do better with. I mean, look, I think where we are seeing Donald Trump needing to make some improvements are with both Republican and independent women. I um, you know, have spent a lot of time sort of crisscrossing the country talking to voters. And I remember uh, a couple months ago, actually, I was speaking with women who normally vote Republican in presidential elections in the state of Ohio who were very concerned about Donald Trump, some of his rhetoric around women. They just weren't sure that they could cast a, a vote for him. I think messaging like this, and, and not just his child care policy, but also, you know, We've talked a bit some of his messaging around race. I think it can't hurt his campaign in its endeavor to reach out to these women who are traditionally Republican, but who have hesitation with him. These comments, though, and this policy proposal comes after Clinton has had a proposal on this issue for a while. You know, she proposed 12 weeks of leave for child care to care for a sick family member, two thirds of your pay. And we expect she'll talk more about this later. Um, Besides the fact that she's had this policy out for a while, how is it different from his? The big difference, one big difference is that it applies to both parents. So if a father wanted to take paternity leave, then he could do so. It offers 12 weeks paid maternity or paternity leave as opposed to six. And it would cap your child care expenses at 10% of your income. Now, you say, boy, that sounds pretty good. How do they pay for it? It's not at all clear. I mean, Donald Trump says that he would pay for most of it through his tax plan, which he says would be some three and a half to four percent growth, which is a really hard thing to figure out uh, whether or not it can actually do that. And most economists who've scored his plan say that that's unlikely, not going to happen, and that it would cost the government three trillion dollars. Clinton, meanwhile, would pay for it by doing what she talks about with a lot of programs, taxing the rich. And so we know that Ivanka was involved heavily in this proposal. She helped craft it. Uh, She introduced Trump when he spoke about it this week. Let's uh, take a moment, though, to talk about this interview she gave to Cosmopolitan magazine that she brought up, Asma, earlier. It's uh, getting some side eyes. Well, I thought it was so interesting because normally when you've seen Ivanka do interviews, she's very poised, I think very controlled. And this interview was, the text was transcribed out, an interview with Cosmo. And in it, she got somewhat flustered, it seemed like, and and testy because she didn't like the direction of some of the questions. So one question that I think rubbed her the wrong way was when the journalist asked about gay couples. As we talked about, Donald Trump's plan only deals with mothers. And she sort of you know, hedged a bit, said that the policy was fleshed out online and and the reporter could go online to look at it. But the other thing that was interesting is the reporter mentioned that in 2004, Donald Trump said that pregnancy is an inconvenient thing for business and asked Ivanka to talk or, or to sort of explain her father's remarks. And she instantly responded by saying, quote, so I think that you have a lot of negativity in these questions and oh. goes on to continue on. And, and anyhow, long story short, the interview goes on a little bit longer. And then she says that she has to go. And that's the end of the interview. <laughs> and it just seemed like such a different Ivanka Trump than than the woman we're used to seeing, very poised, polished, you know, sort of impeccably yeah. dressed on See, television with a very controlled message. I read the same interview and I was like, oh, she's on message. I mean, like, you're not going to get her to, to disparage her father. You're not going to get her to agree with any comments 
that make him look bad. Yeah, but so, she didn't have an uh, uh, like an she didn't have an answer for what Trump's past quote was. Well, I her answer she, kind of was saying, "I don't even know if he said it." Well, but that's but, but that's just that's but just the like, recognition of saying you have a lot of negativity in these questions. That doesn't seem like the Ivanka that we normally see on television. Yeah, I, Usually, I think she's somewhat. Very diplomatic and saying, oh, exactly. well, I can see this side or that side, you know. And, and I thought this was a moment of seeing her get frustrated and, yes. and flustered that we normally don't see. Let's talk about some other Trump news. He uh, had a big economic speech this week in New York. What do we learn about this? So Donald Trump said that he plans on having somewhere between 3.5 to 4 percent growth if he's elected as president. And our colleague Danielle Kurtzleben has written about this because you might remember that number 4 percent growth from Jeb. Do you remember? And he Jeb, was lampooned. What, and one of our business reporters, Jim Zaroli, said, yeah, that's going to be very hard. It's especially going to be hard if the Fed decides to raise interest rates. Except, I will say this, this is the kind of partisan world we live in. We were talking about the anti-elitism of the campaign and of Trump supporters. And it doesn't matter who the economists are who are all saying that there, it's unlikely that you'll have 35 to 4% growth. The other thing that this – I think the, the other newer thing I saw in this, there's a lot of talk about Trump's tax plan, income tax, which he's talked about before. But he's promising that through this growth, he will create 25 million new jobs. Now, that is a huge That's number. A lot of jobs. And there's not – I don't see any real explanation of how that will happen other than there will be more growth and there will be more jobs. I want to know as of this taping, I reached out to the Trump campaign earlier today to ask who these economists are. Uh, that they're basing this on and have not gotten a response. But uh, these are Trump economists. And I I will say, though, that there are things that Donald Trump would propose doing, like infrastructure, that there probably is some crossover support for with Democrats. The issue And that would create jobs. It would. But the issue with infrastructure, John Boehner was in favor of infrastructure when he was uh, House Speaker, but it never got done, even though the White House is in favor of it. Why? Because of how you pay for it. And really, it's very murky how you would pay for any of this stuff. And that's always what winds up holding up some of this legislation. Um, So another story this week, there are a lot of provocative statements from Trump in any given week. It can be very hard to focus on just one. But one reporter at The Washington Post, David A. Farenthold, has done exactly that. He has spent, I guess, like months now focusing on the Donald J. Trump Foundation. Uh, Through that foundation, Trump has claimed multiple times that he has given tens of millions of dollars to charity. So Farenthold, that Post reporter, has been digging for a while on this. And he was asked about what he found by NPR's own Kelly McEvers on All Things Considered this week. So how is the Trump Foundation different from other family foundations? The expectation with family foundations is that if your name is on the foundation, unless you're dead, uh, it's your money that's been given away. And even if you are dead, it was your money before. And Trump has sort of turned that on its head. Uh, Instead, he hasn't put any money into his own foundation since 08. He has other people donate to his foundation. He gives their money away from the Donald J. Trump Foundation with his name on the checks and often leaves people with the impression that what he's giving away is his own money when it's actually not. So the foundation is basically like a middleman. Uh, to take money from one person and give it to another. Yes. Trump has a lot of contacts in the world of charity because he rents out ballrooms, hotel ballrooms, the ballroom at Mar-a-Lago to charities. Charities are often the ones that rent out these ballrooms for big events. And so this enables him to support the uh, charities that do business with him, you know, keeping their good graces without actually having to sacrifice any of his own money. So it's a pretty good deal in one way, but only if you don't expect that your charitable giving is a way of giving actually something of yourself. I mean, I just think what's so amazing about all of the reporting that he's been doing, as you said, Sam, for months, is how transparent he has been. You know, oh, he's yeah. been tracking down He'll, like, foundation after foundation. He'll, like, take screen grabs of the questions he has, yep. of the emails he sends. And he, he tracks sends. them all down, does it in, like, I think it's a pen and paper, pen different and paper. color coding, and he takes photos of it and puts it up on Twitter. So that way, if people have suggestions for, you know, different organizations he has not contacted yet to see if Donald Trump had donated money to those organizations, he can get tips in a really transparent way. But the other thing I think that's so interesting about this is... During this election season, it has felt like Donald Trump's words are so fluid Mm -hmm. and it is so hard to track what he says one day and how it meshes with something he says the next day because often he entirely contradicts himself. So this instead is focusing entirely on his actions, which are his donations. And it's a very trackable method of following a candidate that's been very difficult to follow. Oh, yeah. My thing with the foundation stuff, you know, it's... Really interesting because there have been so many questions raised about the Clinton Foundation, uh, but it does seem that the Clintons actually gave some of their own money to their own foundation, right? But I, my other thing with the Trump Foundation, it does look and feel a bit icky, but 
ultimately money was still going to good causes, even if it wasn't Trump's money, right? I, I mean, Farenthold has also raised questions, though, about whether or not Trump followed through on some uh, of his pledges, right? Yeah. And, Correct. And so that's it's not just where the money is coming from, but whether who it's got, going to okay. and how much. I also think the big problem, you know, that David Farenthold talked about there is that you're essentially taking money that's other people's money. And if you're purchasing things for personal use through your foundation, you're not supposed to do that. So Melania, that? Melania Trump bid on a almost six foot tall painting of Donald Trump. Now, David Farenthold also did a really kind of funny piece about where did that painting go? Because the problem is, is, I don't know. Like Donald Trump can't take that painting and put it in his office or in his house. That would be a violation of IRS rules. So that's one thing that David Farenthold has pointed out in trying to go find this painting or the Tim Tebow helmet that Donald Trump bought uh, at an auction or won at an auction for $12,000. Who would want a Tim Tebow helmet? Yeah. Let's not get into Tim Tebow, given that he's in the minor leagues for the New York Mets right now. My team, not cool. So now, you know, Farenthold has asked Trump to provide some documentation for all this charitable giving to clear things up. Trump continues to not give that stuff to Farenthold. We still have not seen Trump's tax returns. He's the first candidate since 76 to not release his tax returns. Um, We probably won't see any more detailed health records from Trump. He won't even tell us his plan to defeat ISIS. Um, He's not been very forthcoming in many, many, many ways. But he's the same guy that wanted to get the president to release his long-form birth certificate. Um, And we're having so many more conversations about Hillary Clinton and transparency, it seems, sometimes, and about Trump. And he's far less transparent. I mean, let's just be honest about that. When it comes to – if you wanted to clear up questions about how charitable he is – tax returns would show that. So for people who say, God, why do we need to know this voyeuristic stuff about how much money people make? You know, it's not about that. It's about how generous are they? Uh, Do they avoid taxes in any kind of way? And he says he won't release his tax returns until it's out of audit. But that doesn't explain why he can't release tax returns that are no longer. But under you also audit. can release it while it's under and audit. And the IRS has said it's yes, fine to release. Yes, it's fine to release. He absolutely could. But my issue is, it. how much does this matter to voters? I mean, I was I looking think his at core some of the supporters. Yeah, it doesn't matter that though. he doesn't release that. Even beyond that, I mean, he's been tightening up in the polls. And I was looking at one poll that specifically asked whether or not Hillary Clinton should release her medical records, and then asked the exact same question about Donald Trump. What was interesting to me was the divide. Huh. More Democrats thought that Donald Trump should release his medical records than Republicans. And the reverse when asked that question about, you know, their respective candidate. So in my mind, it's like how much do voters really want transparency or how much do they think that the other guy or gal should be giving more transparency? Look, I have to say it's not about whether or not it moves voters. What matters is how they would govern and what this says about them. So another piece of Trump news that we are watching that could become a bigger thing in the next couple of days. Trump uh, was at a black church again. Again. In Michigan. You were there with him last uh, time. I was in Detroit. This time our own Scott Detrow was with uh, Trump in Flint, Michigan, where he was invited by the pastor of the black church there. He began to talk politics at the church, and uh, she cut him off and was like, nah, dude, don't do that. Hillary failed on the economy just like she has failed on foreign policy. Everything she touched didn't work out. Nothing. Now Hillary Clinton. Mr. Trump, I invited you here to thank us for Oh, 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 okay. Okay. Okay, that's good. Ouch. Seems like a fair enough request. He obliged her. But this morning, the morning after, Trump got asked about it on Fox and Friends, and then he had this to say. She got up to introduce me. She was so nervous. She was shaking. And I said, wow, this is sort of strange. And then she came up. So she had that in mind. There's no question about it. Bother you? Does it bother you? you no, seem it like doesn't it bother me. No, it's, I mean, everyone plays their games. Uh, it doesn't bother me. Uh, I'll tell you what really made me feel good. The audience was saying, let him speak, let him speak. Right. And the audience was so great. So here's the thing with the let him speak, let him speak thing. Turns out the crowd actually was not saying that. Because our own Scott Detrow was there in the room, uh, he wrote a whole story this morning about how that's not true. Basically, uh, Trump was starting to get heckled by folks in the church who were saying, why wouldn't you rent to black people? And asking other hard questions of him. And the damage can be taken care of. It's a completely... He, he, it, fictitious version of events, according to Scott, who was in the room. Yes. Also, just to follow up on uh, Trump's claim that this pastor was nervous, um, we actually have audio of her introduction, and you can hear it for yourself. I'm Pastor Faith Greenton 
I mean, this is what's so confusing about this election, right? It's this cognitive dissonance between what happens in reality and then the version of events as retold. And also, it's so weird to see how differently he behaved in this church as opposed to what I saw from him in Detroit. In Detroit, he was very respectful. He was very courteous. He spent lots of time praising the black church and its role in American life. And he didn't talk harsh, hard politics. I mean, I don't think it's that confusing. I mean, this is a pattern that do- that fits with Donald Trump. Yeah. If somebody criticizes him, he hits them back. No, but I'm, I mean, you know I'm saying mean? even before that, though, I'm saying the fact that he would go into that church. The pattern that I see is actually this. You see the res- the sort of ebb and flow of the restrained Donald Trump and yeah. the less restrained yeah. Donald Trump. The Donald Trump who holds back and sticks to the script, and then the Donald Trump who goes to the rallies and unleashes, you know, a more Trumpian speech. And I almost wonder if the same thing it wasn't happening here. He went to one black church and he was on his, you know, sort of on his best behavior. And then yesterday he just decided he was going to go for it. Also, the one person that you don't want to start mess with is a black pastor. They usually win. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) Okay, time for a break. We'll be right back. Support for NPR Politics and the following message come from ABC, premiering its highly anticipated new series, Designated Survivor. Kiefer Sutherland stars as a low-level cabinet member who is suddenly thrust into the presidency after a catastrophic attack on the government. Hailed by TV Guide as fall's buzziest new show, designated survivor Mark Sutherland's compelling return to TV. Part political drama, part conspiracy thriller, designated survivor premieres Wednesday, September 21st at 10, 9 central on ABC. All right, before we get back to our show, I want to let you know about another great show we think you will like. It is called NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's basically the NPR Politics Podcast if we only talked about pop culture, which is secretly my dream. In fact, we modeled our show's format on theirs, which you will hear if you check it out this week. I'm actually a guest on the show. We talk about politics and satire and our favorite documentaries. Check out Pop Culture Happy Hour at npr.org podcast or on the NPR One app. All right, back to the show. Okay, we're back. It's a little later on Thursday afternoon. Hillary Clinton has returned to the campaign trail after taking a few days off to uh, recover from pneumonia. Here's how she took the stage in North Carolina. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to the next president of the United States, Hillary Clinton. I see what you did there. I see what you did there. We should note she's not dancing on stage. Yeah, she's not good at that. But she feels good. Uh, And she came out and addressed her absence from the campaign trail, talked about it directly. I'm not great at taking it easy, even under ordinary circumstances, but with just two months to go until Election Day, sitting at home was pretty much the last place I wanted to be. But it turns out having a few days to myself was actually a gift. I talked with some old friends. I spent time with our very sweet dogs. I okay. Did some I didn't know they had dogs. Sounds like a sick day. What kind of dogs do they have? I didn't know that either. Anyway, uh, she also used the chance to get back on message and talk about child care and family leave. I, I want you to think with me for a minute about how I certainly feel lucky when I'm under the weather. I can afford to take a few days off. Millions of Americans can't. They either go to work sick or they lose a paycheck, don't they? So. Tamara Keith was there with her today in North Carolina. Uh, You can catch up with her on Twitter or at nprpolitics.org for more of her reporting on Clinton's return to the trail. Um, So Hillary Clinton returns to the campaign trail in a race that has become tighter than it was a few weeks ago. Uh, A lot of new polls uh, nationally and in some battleground states show that the race is tight again. She's still ahead, but it's tight. Right. That's right. I mean, I was looking earlier at the Real Clear Politics average. It gives Clinton a 1.1 percent edge. I mean, this is kind of astounding because remember, right after the Democratic convention, Hillary Clinton had a a remarkable lead at that point. Everyone's out of digits, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. That, that it was sort of locked away. That you know, looking into September, the beginning of September, people thought, well, maybe this is an indication that at this point, Donald Trump just could not 
theoretically catch up. Now we're seeing a lot of these polls tighten. I would say all of the the latest national polls have tightened. The latest CBS New York Times poll has Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump tied. He seemed, when you look at the crosstabs, to be getting more sway from independents. So the, the sense I got was that Dems and R's are kind of aligning behind their candidates, but some of the independents were going more towards Donald Trump at this point. And also even in like some battleground states, Trump now has a lead. Uh, in Florida right. and Ohio, it's showing that he's ahead now. In Ohio, it's the last three consecutive polls that have huh. Donald Trump ahead. And he leads by three to five percentage points in all of them. So when you've got three in a row, I think that's rather telling in a state. In Florida, too, I think it's the last two polls in a row that have Donald Trump up. And no surprise, Trump has been talking this up on the trail the last oh, yeah. several days. Uh, you know, we all remember how he loved to cite polls during the primary, and you're hearing a lot more of that again. How much of this, and this is a question maybe we can't answer and we can't d- divine from polls, but I always wonder when these polls move like this, is how much of it is Trump's good behavior or Clinton's missteps? She's had a few recently. Uh, it's, I, I think it's very difficult to connect news events to the polling that we've seen because I think things right now are in flux. And when you see that kind of volatility, I always say best to kind of put stuff at arm's distance, see what the trend line is, watch where things go. One big reason for why there's been such a remarkable tightening is the switch from registered voter models to likely voter models within polling. In other words, they're trying to predict pollsters what the electorate will look like in the fall, as opposed to what we had always been saying is that this is just a snapshot in time. Domingo, can I ask you on that? Because one of the critiques I've consistently heard of likely voter models is that it tilts Republicans. It It overwhelmingly, just by the modeling, tilts Mm -hmm. Republicans because the likely voters who are Dem just may not pick up their phone as much for whatever Well, well, it also takes into account people who have voted in past elections. So that is one big indicator. But if you're young people who haven't voted in past elections or don't have as long a track record. Become a citizen recently. That becomes problematic. Also, enthusiasm is one other factor that some that some pollsters use. And in this election, there's a lot of enthusiasm or Trump has very enthusiastic backers. But I think that there's another side to this coin, and that's Hillary Clinton's unfavorable ratings and the fact that she's underperforming President Obama in some key battleground states with some key demographic groups like young voters and Latinos even in Nevada, for example, in their, in, the, in some state polling there. And young women in particular, which is, I think, a surprise to many people. So having Barack Obama out on the campaign trail for her when his approval rating is over 50 percent is a real key for her because that Obama coalition right now doesn't look as fired up and ready to go for Hillary Clinton as it was for Barack Obama. And there's something missing in translation between his 50 plus percent approval rating and Hillary Clinton's, you know, low 40s, mid 40s. I mean, you go uh, out on the campaign trail. I was recently both in North Carolina and Florida. And I don't see signage. I don't see bumper stickers for Hillary Clinton. You'll see here and there some signage for Donald Trump. But I'm amazed that I was recently in two of the tightest battleground states. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even feel that I was in a battleground state just based on like enthusiasm or signage or something that would make you feel that people are excited about the Democratic candidate. Is this the first round of polling uh, that reflects the first major ad buys from Trump? Oh, you know, that's a good point. There are a lot of things post-Labor Day, people starting to pay attention more, for example, Uh, people seeing more of Donald Trump's ads. You know, news events can pop up, of course. Yeah, I mean, I think that's it's a good point. So you're saying it is? I think it is. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I just. I mean, his yes first no. ad buy was what in early August, I think, and it was in four or five battleground states. So. But he's ramped up since. Then. And he's ramped up. He's ramped, ramped up. up yeah. yeah. I mean, he's still being outspent by a lot by yes. Hillary Clinton on the air. No question about that. Okay. In other Clinton news, it looks like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren will be back on the campaign trail for Clinton in Ohio this weekend, focusing on millennial voters, younger voters. Uh, and Obama himself was on the trail for Clinton this week as well. This is about the young folks. He's trying to get them. She is. And I mean, there have been, it seems like, a lot of Bernie Sanders holdouts in some of the polling that I've seen that that she hasn't been able to completely build that coalition yet. Okay. Um, Here's the thing I'm really, really excited to talk about because it is shady, shady shade. (laughs) Um, You enjoy talking about shade, You know I love some shade. I know you do. (laughs) (laughs) Former Secretary of State Colin Powell had his emails hacked. Again, this happened before, Colin. Change your password. Your password cannot be Colin Powell. Colin Powell. (laughs) Um, Don't try that at home. (laughs) (laughs) 
Maybe it was hacked by the Russians. Who knows? But anyways, a lot of personal emails from Powell sent to other people this year are out now. And one of them, he's quoted calling the Bertha movement racist. He calls Trump a national disgrace. On the whole Hillary Clinton email story, he wrote, quote, HRC could have killed this two years ago by merely telling everyone honestly what she had done and not tie me to it. Um, And Colin Powell's team basically said, yep, these are our emails. I want, before we talk about this, to give you some of my favorite quotables from the Colin Powell emails. Please do. (laughs) Um, On Secretary Clinton herself, he said he would rather not have to vote for her and that she has, quote, a long track record, unbridled ambition, greedy, not transformational. Oh, he oh. called Trump a, quote, international pariah. He uh, said Miss Clinton has minions that tried to drag him into the email controversy. And then he said in one email. Are they like yellow and wearing goggles? In <laughs> yes. one email. This is my favorite Mama one. Voice. He says, quote, I told her staff three times not to try that gambit. I had to throw a mini tantrum at a Hamptons party to get their attention. <laughs> she keeps That's tripping into these character mind fails. By the way, he was also <laughs> mad at her because she drove up the price of speaking fees exactly. at a university and said that. They didn't have enough money to pay him. And her. Yes. Oh. He he said that Liz Cheney um, and Dick Cheney are idiots and a spent Ooh, wow. force peddling a book that ain't going nowhere. <laughs> I mean, he Whoa. was coming for blood. Um, what else did he say? It's but like not being on, inside but not his, on, his But his not mind. on purpose. Yeah. Right? I mean, this is a guy, what's striking to me is he, he is usually- so candid has, in some ways. In this, right? But I, I would just say that this is a guy who in his public image is usually a model of restraint. Oh, yeah. So to hear what he really believes behind the scenes is pretty stunning. And frankly, like it's not like he walked back any no, of this stuff like, or apologized. Yeah. He just said, this, this is what I said. This confirms my theory of all people. We're actually really all shady and petty. God. I'm sorry, we are. We I are. Let's see what's in your email, Sam. <laughs> I, oh, boy. I, what's he saying I, about us? I text my shade, actually. That's what I do. He's like, don't have it be traceable. He doesn't want anyone to hack his emails. Mm-hmm. Okay. Before we go, uh, late breaking gaffe this afternoon from Donald Trump Jr. He said the media would be, quote, warming up the gas chamber if Donald Trump acted like Hillary Clinton. Yeah. I mean, he said it was a Holocaust reference. I mean, how could that not be? Um, Trump's camp already hit back and said, no, it's not a reference to that. So what was it? He said it's a reference to capital punishment, which is, it used to happen by gas chamber here, but but that was a long time ago. mostly lethal injection I have never even heard of that. Mm -hmm. It's like rhetoric just has gone to 11. Like, it just is, you know, who can top the next person with saying the nastiest thing? All right, one more quick break. We'll be right back with Listener Mail and Can't Let It Go. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, United Health Group, who asks, how can we really improve health care? Bring back the house call? Open walk-in clinics in convenient places? Help more moms get prenatal care? Or use technology to find insights that lower health care costs? Maybe help doctors spend more time with patients, not paperwork. What if we did all of this and more? Because it's all connected to better care, and better care means better health. United Health Group, built for better health. Learn more at unitedhealthgroup.com. Hey, Sadie here, a political science student at Kent State University in the dining hall. Thanks so much for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. If you're still hungry for more politics, check out this week's episode of Hidden Brain, hosted by social science correspondent Shankar Vedantam. This week, they're looking at how our ideas about family shape our politics and how the divisions in America's political battles are a little bit like one giant parenting dispute. Check it out in the NPR One app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, time for a few of your questions. Reminder, we are answering many more of your questions, including your recorded ones. Keep sending those in our new Monday Mail episodes. The next one will be in your feed first thing Monday morning. For today, here's a question from Jay Robbins, a high school history teacher from Pleasant Valley High School in Pennsylvania. Hey there. Shout out to his AP government and politics class. He writes, quote, today we learned that Hillary Clinton has pneumonia and my students were discussing a hypothetical situation where she would be forced to drop out of the race. We were trying to figure out what would happen if this were the case. I was going to assign this research to my students as homework, but they decided that we should ask you guys first. Okay, so yeah, um, he says, how will they go about replacing Hillary? Help save my students from homework. Jay, I guess first I got to point out it is very unlikely that she leaves the race. 
very unlikely. But that said, if yeah. she did. Okay. Uh, first of all, did you guys grow up and have call a teacher? Did you have like those magnets on your fridge? Maybe it was just a New York thing. But so you like had, ask a nurse? You could call. You, you call this 800 number and like a teacher would pick up. Were they Whoa. good teachers? Yeah, like they answered to help. They answered your homework help. Yeah, yeah. It was like That's homework help. Cool. It was pretty cool. That's I mean, sweet. you know, this is in the days before Google, but, you know, whatever. It was cool. Anyway, thank you, Mr. Robbins and class. Well, uh, I went and looked, and I have to say that the Democratic National Committee does this <laughs> in a very different way than the Republican National Committee. Essentially, the Republican National Committee says if there's a vacancy, they would get together, they would vote majority rules. Essentially, that's what they do. The Democrats are a little more complicated and kind of vague, frankly. Uh, The rules say that the national chairperson of the Democratic National Committee shall confer with the Democratic leadership of the United States Congress and the Democratic Governors Association and shall report to the Democratic National Committee, which is authorized to fill the vacancy. So the the committee ultimately fills it, though. Yes, under but the consultation you, of all these other groups. Mm-hmm. But, but there's you, not really a clearly right. outlined plan. Yeah, do they you, all did vote? Did you hear me say how? <laughs> yeah, how? Do they vote? Is it like I yeah. like glazed thing? over that with so many little steps and <laughs> It's not that many steps. It's basically all it is is the DNC confers with Democratic leaders in Congress and the Democratic Governors Association and then they'll figure it out and then with they the figure DNC it out. and the DNC will fill it. So they but there aren't clear rules. Okay. There aren't clear rules on like a majority or what. Like they would have to make it up. Interesting. Murky. All right. Next question comes from Mike in Cary, Illinois. Uh, he's also a teacher. Shout yeah. out to the teachers. So many education listeners. Love that. He writes, quote, Hi, politics podcasters. I would like to know how true the stereotypes of voters are. I'm currently a teacher and union member, so everyone assumes that I am hardline Democrat. But I'm also a veteran, U.S. Army 2004, and that status has the people assuming that I'm a hardline Republican. Can the combined expertise of the most musical political team clear this up for me? Well, Mike, why don't you tell us what you are? I'm going to sing the answer for him. I'm actually not. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I was waiting for that. Come on. A little bit. My voice is a little scratchy today. Oh, okay. Well, Mike, I, I do spend a lot of time looking at voter groups, different demographics, different age groups. And I think some of those distinctions are very helpful. And I will say race, for example, particularly in this election, we've seen a clear movement uh, of African-Americans, Hispanics and Asian-Americans. Uh, pretty much in every poll, they seem to be aligning with a Democratic presidential candidate. So I think that's a very helpful measure. I would say even among some younger voters, we've seen some of them be resistant to supporting Hillary Clinton. But I was speaking with a pollster uh, from Harvard, from the Harvard Institute of Politics this summer, and he said one of the best indicators that he had for whether or not a young person was going to support Hillary Clinton was the color of their skin. Hmm. And I thought that was very interesting. So I, I would say race is a very helpful predictor Another for understanding. Yeah, for understanding how folks may vote. Another good predictor is whether or not you have an advanced degree. People who have more than a bachelor's degree are very, very likely to vote for Democrats. That's true. But even among the college education group, I think that's another interesting one because uh, you mentioned folks who have a higher degree. But among folks who have just a bachelor's degree who are white, they actually have historically been Republican. And in this election cycle, we're actually seeing white folks who have a college degree tilt more towards Hillary Clinton. So cool. maybe Mike's an independent. That's that's going to be my guess. <laughs> All right, Mike. Keep listening. That's the mail. Again, send us your questions written or recorded to nprpolitics at npr.org. We do read everything that comes in. Uh, you may just hear your question on the weekly roundup or in our Monday mail episodes. All right, now it's time for Can't Let It Go when we all share one thing we just cannot stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise. I'm going to go first because I can. Um, Cool. We talked in our Monday episode about Hillary Clinton's comments on the basket of deplorables, where she basically said a good half of Trump voters are racist, xenophobes, etc. And I said it in that episode that my problem with comments like that is that they don't lead to a more productive, open-ended conversation about race because you shut down the conversation when there's that kind of finger pointing. And some people disagree with me. I stand by that comment, but I want to point out one thing that we missed uh, in the aftermath of those comments. Everyone pointed to polling data that shows how Trump supporters by this measure or that measure are racist, but everybody forgot to look at what those same numbers say about Democrats and Clinton supporters, 
And there are some numbers that are hard to swallow within that group as well. I want to quote a few stats for you guys. Almost 20 percent of Clinton supporters in this election say blacks are less intelligent than whites, according to a poll from Reuters. 30 percent of Clinton supporters said blacks are more rude than whites. 30 percent said blacks are more violent and more criminal than whites. Why I want us to stop having these conversations where we get to finger point about who's racist is that it takes all of the onus off of us to examine our own deficits and how we can improve and our own challenges. Racism is not limited to one corner of the country or to one party. I am aware of the racial rhetoric that is coming around in this election and who it's coming from. And I'm aware that the, that the numbers are different for Democrats versus the GOP. I'm just saying that there's space to work on both sides. Nobody's perfect, so don't think you are. Right. I mean, like, yes. don't act like exactly don't act like it's black and white, literally, where I'm perfect. Yeah. You're bad. Like, exactly. And no nuance and no, you know, everything's filtered through that subjective lens. Like exactly. Self-awareness is self-awareness is probably key. the most important thing someone can have. That's it. So, Sam, if I can piggyback off of that. Yeah. Uh, my click is, is sort of tangentially okay. related. Um, you were talking about the Democrats and some of the complicated feelings that Democrats have about yeah. race. I would throw in religion there as yeah. well. So I was in Florida this week working on a story uh, that the Clinton campaign has hired a, someone to do Muslim voter outreach. And this is actually very novel and, and new because um, the Obama campaign tried to do this eight years ago. And I spoke with the guy who had the job. His name is Mazen Asbahi. He was legit. He told me in the job for about three weeks. It didn't take long for the far right to try to do some negative research on me with the hope of possibly finding a way to attack then-Senator Barack Obama. Eventually, they did. They made a guilt-by-association attack connecting me to a, an imam of one of the largest uh, mosques in Chicago who had come under some scrutiny way back when, um, but that was enough to cause some concern at the campaign. So in the 2008 election, um, Mazen ended up resigning from this post huh. after just about three weeks. Uh, the New York Times reported similarly that Keith Ellison, who's a congressman, a Muslim congressman from Minnesota, had volunteered. He wanted to go and campaign for President Obama at a mosque in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And uh, an Obama aide, according to the New York Times report, you know, discouraged him from doing that. Oh, that wow. He was not actually allowed to go out and forcefully campaign for President Obama the way he wanted to. Mm. And I, I mention all of that because I think that as you're sort of speaking, I think that there have been really conflicted emotions, even I would say broadly within the Democratic Party, yeah. around how sort of how to embrace uh, or distance themselves at times from the Muslim community. And one of the things that I discovered from my interviews this week is that folks were telling me that because the GOP frontrunner this election cycle has sort of outspokenly expressed some anti-Muslim remarks yeah. that in some ways that's almost allowed the Democratic Party to embrace, to embrace them in a way that they hadn't eight yeah. years ago. Yeah, that's very fascinating. So can't let that go. Sarah, what you got? OK, so mine starts kind of in a serious place, kind of related to that. Uh, but I have to warn you, the upshot of it, it's not serious. So okay. um, we'll allow it. Yeah. So this was um, Donald Trump often talks about when, he t when he's talking about refugees and about Muslims. He often talks about the San Bernardino shootings, right, as a reason he says that we need to restrict immigration from refugees. And this is something he brings up a lot. But there was one particular thing he said. And the point of my can't let it go is is not really the context so much as what he, how he said this. Um, in Virginia Beach, and this was actually last week, he did a roundtable on veterans issues and he was talking about this this danger that he sees as being sort of, you know, everywhere. And he was saying, you know, you can have a young married couple. You Like, we don't know who to trust. And then he made a reference to something uh, that had been in that news story. And the way he the way he referenced it is what I want you to hear. You see San Bernardino, they're getting thrown a party, a shower party or a baby party. <laughs> and that's it. That is all I have. A I, shower party. I mean... Is there any more to that? Like, he just said it was... He goes on to say, you know, the point being, like, these people got a baby shower thrown for them by their coworkers and we couldn't trust them. But what, what I want shower you to focus party. on is what this what Trump calls a baby shower. A like, shower party. And it was kind of like I tweeted about it at the time and a couple of people were like, oh, my gosh, he doesn't know. But, like, I also kind of feel like there's probably a lot of 70-year-old men out there that don't know what the heck that thing is called that the ladies go do when they have a baby. So um, I'll just say party. dad joke alert. But when I heard him talk about baby 
party shower. What do you say? Shower shower party. He didn't shower know what party, it was shower party, party, like that's what I call it. All I thought was somebody better bring the no more tears because okay. if there's a baby party shower, you better make sure the kid doesn't cry. I just thought it was actually kind of a very get Sa- that Sarah joke. knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The no more tears, yeah. like the stuff, the shampoo to keep, yeah. you know, the because regular shampoo gets in the baby's oh, eyes and they cry okay, okay. and it stings and it's yeah. hashtag dad joke. Sorry. Sorry, not sorry. You're like a walking dad joke. Well, sometimes. Familiarity with little girl shampoo. I've been a walking dad joke since I was six. (laughs) Dominica? What I cannot let go of is the fact that I was sitting at a morning meeting yesterday, uh, network meeting, network-wide meeting, and I said – I overheard a conversation about Apple and someone was talking about the phone jack and the fact that like there was like second-level analysis of – and I said, Apple – Apple's – like doing away with the phone jack, and this was and yesterday th- or two days ago, and everyone's keep like, in mind this news actually occurred yeah. was last like week, couple weeks or something. So I, they while. all looked at me like, where you been? What? Yeah, and they, someone just said, I really appreciate your singular focus <laughs> because <laughs> this is not this election has ruined all of anything that I like would normally pay attention to and be on top of, and I take some pride in you know kind of having an idea about what happens outside of our realm. But there's just been so much incoming with this election that I just can't let go of the fact that it is like encased uh, me in consuming. this tunnel of Aww. just tunnel vision. And it's it's not healthy. It's not a good thing. I mean, Domenico, yourself, you're on Domenico. Twitter all the time and this yeah. was all over Twitter. How did you miss it? Because uh, I'm not in that He's Twitter. He's on political Twitter. Yeah, see? Uh, um, and I, you know, maybe you should diversify your Twitter. But yeah. by the way, by I have interest. to say what I am outraged by is the fact that now that I, what I can't let go is that how is Apple doing away with a phone jack? Okay, like just because headphone jack, headphone jack. Head, head, ex- well, who cares? People you are listening on You should tweet about your outrage jack. now like, and no, see how folks respond to your delayed outrage. Just for what? For what? To like, it's, to like, to jack up prices no, it, so that like, because everyone want... on our podcast is listening with a headphone jack? The future of smart technology is smart headphones. Is wireless? And the same, no. In the same way that there are smart watches, they're gonna smart headphones are next, and this is a ploy to get you to have to buy those. Whatever. The thing that I tweeted about this last week, if you had been following, if you've been watching me on Twitter, you would have known about this. Is <laughs> my objection is like I can't even keep regular earbuds in my ears as it is; they fall out. Like if I'm at the gym or even just like walking around, they just fall out. I have very strangely shaped ear canals, yeah. and I can't do that. So earbuds. like, though I've seen the pictures of these things; like they're gonna fall out, and they cost like a million dollars. So, but I'm not can happy. you not just use any old headphones? Like you could use those. I like how big your hands are like right now. <laughs> Like about because I'm wearing really giant headphones. So I was like, can't you do just you, use? Do you these like wearing giant using giant headphones? So I use them all the time on the plane because uh-huh. uh, they sort of cancel the gym. Though they look, they look good. Um, yeah, but sometimes I use them there. I actually use them in public places. You sure sometimes. do. I've seen you walking with them. And I'm like, <laughs> no. oh man, just like sees me on the street. <laughs> beats by asthma. <laughs> oh, I'm so mad at beats by asthma. Still. <laughs> 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 all right, that's a wrap. As always, more of our coverage is at npr.org on the NPR One app and on your local public radio station. Leave us an iTunes review if you like the show. And write to us at NPRpolitics at npr.org. We'll have a new episode of Monday Mail in your feed first thing Monday morning. Until then, I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Asma Khalid, covered demographics and the campaign. I'm Sarah McCammon, campaign reporter. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.